Now it's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Gregory Rodriguez. Gregory Rodriguez is the founder and publisher of Socolow Public Square. He has written for such leading publications as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, Time, and the Los Angeles Times, where he was a longtime op-ed columnist. He's the author of Mongrels, Bastards, Orphans, and Vagabonds, Mexican Immigration and the Future of Race in America, which the Washington Post listed among the best books of the year. In 2012, he was named a Goldman Sachs Senior Fellow at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. He also founded and directs the What It Means to Be American Project with the Smithsonian Institution. Please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Gregory Rodriguez. Hello. Uh, I want to thank uh, everyone here and everyone here at the Steinbeck Center. Uh, Dennis, thank you very much. Myself, speech, everyone in the staff. Uh, I do have to brag uh, before I introduce. We uh, just went down to the, the archives downstairs, and we and Tomas actually got to hold one of uh, Steinbeck's pencils, <laughs> which was strikingly sharp. It was. It was. No blood for it. We saw a wallet. Uh, you, uh, Gary, you were looking at a manuscript. <laughs> it was pretty cool, so we're really, really pleased to be here. Uh, joining me tonight uh, are, uh, and these are very truncated bios, because we would be here all night if they weren't, Patty Limerick. She is a historian at the University of Colorado, where she is also the faculty director of the Center of the American West. She's a former Colorado State historian and author of The Legacy of Conquest, The Unbroken Past of the American West. To her left, Gary Gersel. Gary is a political and social historian at the University of Cambridge and the author of American Crucible, Race and Nation in 20th Century America. And uh, to his left is Tomas Jimenez. He's a sociologist at Stanford University and the author of The Other Side of Assimilation, How Immigrants Are Changing American Life. Please welcome them all. So, as you know, this year's Steinbeck book is America and Americans, and um, we were looking through it, and I think everyone's read all the essays, and the theme of tonight came from the essay, uh, this was all, they were all published in 1966, two years before his death, uh, from the essay E Pluribus Unum, and I wanted to start the evening um, reading just three sections of E Pluribus Unum to start us off. This is John Steinbeck. America did not exist, four centuries of work of bloodshed, of loneliness and fear created this land. We built America and the process made us Americans, a new breed rooted in all races, stained and tinted with all colors, a seeming ethnic anarchy. Then in a little, little time, we became more alike than we were different, a new society, not great, but fitted by our, own, by our very faults for greatness. E pluribus unum. The whole thing is crazy. Every single man in our emerging country was out for himself against all others, for his safety, his profit, his future. He had little care for the land. He ripped it, raped it, and in some cases destroyed it. He cut and burned the forest, fired and plowed the plains, dredged the beautiful rivers for gold, leaving a pebble devastation. When his family grew up about him, he set it against all other families. When communities arose, each one defended itself against other communities. The provinces which became states were each one a suspicious unit with jealously held borders and duties, tolls, and penalties against strangers. The surges of the new restless, needy, and strong, grudgingly brought in for purposes of hard labor and cheap wages, were resisted, resented, and accepted only when a new and different wave came in. 
Consider how the Germans clotted for self-defense until the Irish took the resented place, how the Irish became Americans against the Poles, the Slavs against the Italians. On the West Coast, the Chinese ceased to be enemies only when the Japanese arrived, and they in the face of the invasions of Hindus, Filipinos, and Mexicans. Nor were the dislikes saved exclusively for foreigners. When dust and economics rooted up the poor dirt farmers of Oklahoma and pushed them westward, they were met with perhaps even more suspicion and resentment than the other waves. All this has been true, and yet in one or two, certainly not more than three generations, each ethnic group has clicked into place in the union without losing the pluribus. When we read the lineup of a University of Notre Dame football team called the Fighting Irish, we do not find it ridiculous that the names are Polish, Slovak, Italian, or Fiji, for that matter. They're all fighting Irish. How all these fragments of the peoples of the world who settled America became one people is not only a mystery, but quite contrary to their original wishes and intentions. The first European settlers on the eastern shores of America did not, not only did not want to merge with other peoples, but made sure by their regulations and their defenses they did not. And finally, from the first we have treated our minorities abominably, the way the old boys do the new kids in school. All that was required to release this mechanism of oppression and sadism was that the newcomers be meek, poor, weak in numbers, and unprotected, although it helped if their skin, hair, eyes were different, and if they spoke some language other than English, or worshipped in some church other than Protestant. The Pilgrim Fathers took out after the Catholics and both clobbered the Jews. The Irish had their turn running the gauntlet and after them the Germans, the Poles, the Slovaks, the Italians, the Hindus, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Filipinos, the Mexicans. To all these people we gave disparaging names. Mix, Sheenies, Krauts, Dagos, Wops, Ragheads, Yellow Bellies, and so forth. The turn against each group continued until it became sound, solvent, self-defensive, and economically anonymous, whereupon each group joined the older boys and charged down on the newest ones. It occurs to me that this very cruelty toward newcomers might go far to explain the speed with which the ethnic and national strangers merged with the Americans. Having suffered, one would, one would have thought they might have pity on the newer come, but they did not. They couldn't wait to join the majority and indulge in the accepted upper caste practice of rumbling some, new, some newer group. Wow. <laughs> In this essay, it seems to me, Steinbeck seems to both lament the cruelty with which Americans of different origins met each other, but he ultimately celebrates the unum he thinks has been created in the, the process of hazing and I'd like to start this all by asking each of you, what do you each make of Seinbrecht's celebration of the unum and the characterization of the hazing, and whether he was right? Patty? <laughs> Thank you for that spirit-lifting beginning. That just set us off here for a delightful evening of uh, morning, I guess, Except that I, I don't think I have a problem with the notion, uh, because in the next chapter after this, Steinbeck totally goes over the, after the word paradox. 
So if I can get that next chapter, he's telling us about a paradox. He's telling mm -hmm. us about how this indeed is an accurate characterization in many ways of the uh, encounters and frictions and, and the people who get a little bit higher on the ladder and who then enjoy very much kicking the people down that. So that all happens. And that's not the usual storybook way in which people come together kicking each other down a ladder, but there are worse ways to get to know each other. And out of that... Let's go back to that, but go on. Well, there are worse ways, and there are better ways as well. Right. But, so I think t that we might set ourselves up for bitter disappointment if we think that this should be a group hug from earlier on. And uh, it is possible, I mean, I think I'm just going to use one example among many, one of which is that if you wanted to find people in the United States who were not Indians, who thought uh, empathetically and, and understandingly of Indian people's dilemma, one place to go would be the military. Because those officers, not very many of them, but a, a significant percentage and a well-spoken percentage uh, were people who thought this is going badly and we must do better than that. One of them, one general had himself sued, secretly arranged to have himself sued so he would not have to remove one group of mm -hmm. Indian people. So of all the places where you might think, I wonder where we would look for people who are thinking of others who seem to be at war in an empathetic way. Curiously, I just use that one example. Mm -hmm. So there are worse ways to get to know each other and there are, there's some kind of promise in having conflict as a really important origin point that can then move into something else, that can evolve into something else. Great. Gary, what do you make of his characterization of the hazing and of the successful creation of the, the Unum? I loved it, actually. The uh, first thing it made me think of was my mother, who, <laughs> who's 93. We'll also, we'll talk about that later over here. <laughs> who's, who's 93 and an immigrant herself, and uh, God bless her, and her 93rd year, she struggles on. Um, the, uh, but I caught her once saying, you know, immigrants today are just not made the way the founding fathers <laughs> wanted to make them. Now, my mother came in 1938, and I said, what do you know about the founding fathers? <laughs> uh, you know, you've only been here 30 or 40 years yourself, but it, it captures this sense, uh, and it indicates a certain capacity of America to absorb newcomers, because my mother felt herself and feels herself to be fully American, and yet that sense of inclusion is purchased at the cost of finding someone else to beat up on. What I like about the story is that it captures the raucous character of American society and reminds us mm. that this has always been a country full of conflict. Uh, and uh, there, a sense of Americanness, a sense of unum does emerge, but it does not emerge easily, blissfully, it emerges through conflict, sometimes through hatred, uh, and it requires, over the long term, something missing from his very eloquent essay, a set of institutions mm. capable of taking these differences and managing people in ways that integrate them. And actually, the military, historically, mm -hmm. if you think about the 16 million people who served in the World War II Army uh, from every walk of American life, and you think of the integrative power of that uh, very, very powerful mm -hmm. effect uh, it has to be said that the story of making an unum uh, is uh, mostly a European story that he's telling, mm -hmm. European immigrants. He does include the Chinese and the Japanese. He has nothing to say in these parts about indigenous population or about blacks. 
uh, and the profound issue of slavery. Now, he comes to indigenous people later in the essay, but he doesn't touch the black question and the history of slavery and what that means. And I think a, a, a reckoning with difference and diversity in American life and understanding who's able to come together and who is not, at the end of the day, we must reckon with the issue of slavery and its legacy in American society. And I think that is an essay, that part of the story he does not capture so well in this essay. Tomas? Um, so I, I agree with Gary. I, I liked it, and, and, as I, and I largely agree with it. And I read the essay with the notion that, um, that Steinbeck is writing this in 1965, it's, or four, it's published in 1966. And so I'm trying to put myself in his shoes at that time. And at that time, we are almost two generations away from the largest wave of immigration that had come to the United States at that time. And, and that wave of immigration had ended about 40 years before, more than 40 years uh, before he wrote this essay. And so you have a kind of third generation of the grandchildren of the, of the Italians and the Poles and the Russian Jews who are coming of age and, and they are kind of solidifying the story of American assimilation, which in many ways is a story that he's telling. So, I, so from that perspective, I think he's kind of uh, celebrating something that has happened. What he could not have anticipated at the time was that uh, the United States, it was already in the process, but in terms of how we thought of ourselves, how we thought of ourselves racially and ethnically was about to blow up or was in the process mm -hmm. of blowing up. Um, and, and would really blow up, and, and immigration would reemerge this time, uh, mostly from Latin America, but also Asia and, and the Caribbean. And so, um, I don't know if this is, I'm, I'm punting on this, but uh, it, it's a question that I, that I think, you know, we can grapple with a little bit on the panel if, if we're so inclined. Um, but, you know, if we're, let's assume that we are past the peak of immigration for this kind of latest wave, what would we write 40 years from now? If we, if we read this essay 40 years from now, could we replace the Italians and the Poles and the Jews with the Mexicans uh, and the Central Americans and the Muslims and, and, and East Asians and largely write the same story? Mm -hmm. Gary, you mentioned the, the, the sets of institutions that help to manage such conflict. Um, you've written eloquently about the are they, are, they, are they ideologies? Are they uh, about ways of viewing America and, and America's social cohesion? Could you tell us a little bit about the, the, the major ways that we understand America to cohere? Institutionally or ideologically? Ideologically. Or? Well, I, I believe that there are two major ideologies of association and cohesion in America. One of them I call civic nationalism. And the civic creed is that anyone can come to America from any place. Doesn't matter where you're from or how rich or poor you are. Uh, doesn't matter what your religion is, your ethnicity, uh, your political beliefs. If you're willing to come, work hard, make something of yourself, obey the law, subscribe to American ideals as embodied in the Declaration of Independence <laughs> and the Constitution, you will find your way to a good place in America. It's a remarkably welcoming creed, and it's alive today. Many people live it, uh, and many people believe in it. There's also the other ideology of belonging, which stands in diametrical opposition to that, and that is what I call racial nationalism. That at the end of the day, America is a place 
for Europeans and the descendants of Europeans. And if you don't come from that part of the world, this is not going to be a very comfortable place for you. And that uh, idea uh, wars against the civic nationalist idea. It's easy to say they belong to different people. It's easy to say civic nationalism is Martin Luther King and racial nationalism is the KKK. But the more complicated history of America is that often these two impulses are present in the minds of the same people warring against each other. Uh, and America's story of belonging is a story of both these ideologies at work, uh, one trying to include everyone, and the other saying we will include, but we will also exclude. And so the story of incorporation in America and belonging is always taking in new people, but it's always identifying other groups about whom it is said uh, you don't belong uh, because of your race. Uh, and uh, in, re in, in response to your question about uh, t w what are people going to be writing in 50 years, uh, the great fear of today is that America will no longer be America anymore when America becomes a majority-minority nation, which is going to become by 2050, meaning a majority of Americans are not of European descent. Uh, what's interesting to me is that similar critiques were made of other so-called racial inferiors, Eastern and Southern Europeans of the early 20th century. They are now regarded as good Americans. I have great confidence in the ability of civic nationalism to renew itself, but it will never completely defeat the racial nationalism component. Patty, one of your great, of many contributions to our understanding of American history. I always like it when your eyes go like this and wander around. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> throws me off, which is probably why you do it. Um, as a, you've written that uh, the, 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 the tensions, the urban tensions of the Northeast uh, often come across as a family picnic compared to the, the, what happened out West. And you've helped expand our understanding of, of, of the nature of conquest in American history. Um, could you tell us a little bit about yeah. that? Well, that's quite a wild picnic. Northeastern urban <laughs> picnic, uh, but it has that, well, it has the common ground of mostly people from Europe, uh, and the American West just has so many lines of identity and division and different ways of arriving in this thing called the nation. So the diversity of people in the American West uh, from early on, I mean, I think it's, we do better understanding the United States today if we start our understanding in the Western half of the country because, or what becomes the country, because of all of the very distinct tribes who hold on to territory and are still in our, in our world because of the fact that, uh, as the phrase usually goes for Mexican people, they didn't cross the border at the start, the border crossed them. And so it's one thing when you were using the phrase to come to the United States, I'm thinking, mm. what if the United States comes to you, mm. which is the Western American story, and, and you hadn't really invited the United States to, uh, to come visit. So, uh, so, well, thank you. Uh, and actually, this is pretty funny. I, I'm going to reminisce just for a second that Stephen Ambrose, the noted author, and I once had a, a spirited debate in public over whether the Nez Perce people should have been so pleasant to Lewis and Clark. <laughs> because uh, 
because uh, Ambrose thought that was a very good thing that they'd done, and I just kept saying, but if you are pleasant to a small group of visitors and then they bring thousands of their friends in the next decades, how smart was that, as I think? So, <laughs> so, uh, so I just, I think the lines of conquest are lasting, and they, they are not about voluntary, here we come as immigrants who chose this, as indeed as you were saying with slavery, that's not a voluntary exercise. Asian immigrants of many different kinds, I, I have used in various publications phrases like Asian Americans, and that is such a um, overgeneralization of so many diverse, mm -hmm. diverse groups. So uh, French Canadians, French Canadians who come into the uh, um, American West, uh, not long after the Louisiana Purchase, or about the same time as that, and then have a mixed population. So on one side, the lines of conflict are intense, but on the other side, the hybridity and mixture of identity that after a few rounds of the fur traders sizing up situations and thinking, we'd like to have better ties with these tribes, why there's a beautiful young woman who happens to be the daughter of an influential figure in the tribe, maybe that would be a relationship to pursue. So, so the mixture of ethnic identities is significant as well, so it's just hard, it, it is easier to deal with that notion of people coming voluntarily into a mm -hmm. place, and it's, it's a really a game changer to have so much, still so significant, they're the boringest things in the world, borders are surveyed in a process that bores people, Trails are made from dynamic movements mm -hmm. of people. Those are interesting. When you go to a trail, you think, oh, who is here? But the border just sits there. But those lines of jurisdiction, not just between nations, but between states, between tribes and surrounding areas, all of those ho-hum, there's a border things just so sum up this notion of, and we're supposed to be getting along when we actually literally have all these lines right. on the ground dividing us? Tomas, you mentioned in your comments that, that whatever Steinbeck understood assimilation to be writing in the the early 60s blew up a few years later, and, and that prompted me to ask a broader question about how you understand, I know it's a big question in a short amount of time, understandings of belonging, of assimilation, of integration uh, changed over time in the US. Yeah, so. Not just in that period, but. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> so you want a hundred years of. I want 200, buddy. Yeah. On your <laughs> mark. I'll, I'll, get going. I'll, I'll, there. Nine, 90 seconds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> waste of time. Yeah, yeah, waste yeah. of time. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm delaying here. You missed two decades. We missed uh, two decades here. So. No, I mean, you know, the, the, it, uh, I, I think that we often, in hindsight, think that all of the immigrants and their descendants changed to be like us and, and interpret the current moment by thinking that none of the immigrants and their descendants will ever change. And, and quite the opposite is true. And, and the, the story of assimilation is, is mostly true that Steinbeck tells. I think if I had to add something to it, it would be that as all of the groups that he mentions become part of the American mainstream to varying degrees, they change the notion of what it means to be a mainstream American. So you, tell, you know, Patty's talking mm -hmm. about borders. You think about the boundaries of the mainstream have been historically quite flexible. Um, so, you know, after the, the third and fourth generation descendants of the early, or the, excuse me, the Southern Eastern European immigrants come of age, the, the American mainstream has an ethnic flavor. It has a kind of hyphenated flavor, and, it, and, and that hyphenation is not something that people are trying to kind of force into it. It's something that fits quite naturally. So, if you, you know, you can give a couple of what might seem like trite examples, but perhaps not. A lot of us put up Christmas trees 
in our house when, during, during the holidays, and we don't think that we're honoring Germ the great German immigrants who came here and were kind of engaging in some, in some kind of diversity. We talk about a Judeo-Christian American society. Gary alluded to this, but that Judeo part certainly was not a part of of uh, early 20th, even mid 20th century notions of the American religious mainstream and the Christian part didn't have Catholics in it. I actually think the same thing is happening now, that as immigrants give up something when they leave the places that they, that they move from and come here to try and gain something else, that the people who've been here for a long time, the people who've been here for many generations, also feel like they lose something. And you hear it, you hear it in our politics, but you hear it, you hear it in, in people's everyday life. They feel like their neighborhoods are changing, their workplaces are changing, their families are changing as their kids and grandkids start marrying and dating people of different backgrounds. But that's really just the process of assimilation that's unfolding that's not just changing the immigrants and their descendants, but also changing the outlooks, changing the sense of the cultural mainstream, changing the sense of belonging that we all have. Mm -hmm. And that process, kind of going back to the, the, the thread of this conversation, is, is turbulent. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for everyone. The immigrant experience, whether you look at it from the perspective of the immigrants and their descendants or the people who've been here for generations, is a story of ambivalence. It's a story of gain and loss. Mm -hmm. And I think the kind of to me, the story of assimilation is, is finding the kind of middle ground in that sense of gain and loss, such mm -hmm. that, that we're, we feel like we're kind of gaining from each other. Mm -hmm. Gary, I, I'd rather not, but may I? I it's he, your show. He, he runs the yeah. <laughs> I warned you all. <laughs> I didn't warn you, but now you're warned. Yeah. Um, I was, uh, was going to give a good Tina Turner joke, but you just ruined it. <laughs> My, I, I've, I've often wondered uh, what sort of what getting along means. I mean, does it require? Um, this is with a Tina Turner, love. Does it require uh, mere toleration? Is it the fact that I just don't want to kill my neighbor just good enough that I don't kill or want to kill? What 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 is other than the ideological frameworks that you've laid out? what is the secret sauce? What's that glue that's required? And, and is there a maximum and a minimum to it? Because we often talk about getting along in terms of love or harmony. Isn't it something a little more prosaic than that? I, I, I have to go first because my dream, <laughs> my aspiration, which I actually confessed to, maybe Gary, I told you this ages ago, that my dream was to be to public speaking what Tina Turner was to performing. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm so glad this came Gary. out. So, oh. Can, can I have Gary answer this first, and we'll go next? I've said I, a lot right there. So. <laughs> the, the, the secret sauce. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, in America, the points of contact uh, that different racial and ethnic groups have had have been multiple workplace, culture, leisure. Uh, and I think the, um, if we were to have a full understanding of how assimilation works and how getting along works. It's not enough to study each group and its ambivalence. I agree with everything you said. We have to also understand uh, a kind of common culture that is created. And there's a common culture generated formally in curricula in schools. We can debate how effective that is. But there's another culture, which is mass culture. Uh, and mass culture in America is one of the most dynamic forces in the world that the world has ever seen, certainly one of the most dynamic forces 
uh, of the last hundred years. You can love it, you can hate it, you can't ignore its power uh, in America uh, and in the world. And I'm talking about music, and I'm talking about movies, uh, and I'm talking about the other mass cultural products and, and the drama. And uh, the, this has been a joint project uh, on the part of many different immigrant groups, uh, whether you look at jazz, or you look at rock and roll, uh, or you look at movies, uh, th this uh, world is the creation of multiple groups, many of them newcomers to American society. And if we're to understand what it is that holds America together, it's not just do you like the Constitution or not, or do you like your neighbor, is what do you listen to on the radio? It's shared reference points. It's shared mm -hmm. reference points. And, uh, and, and what, what do you experience in your leisure time? Uh, I, I could have the same reference points as you, and I could hate you and want you off the stage. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, again, what I'm getting at is what is the level of affection or tolerance? What, okay. is, what, what, what are we looking for when we say mm -hmm. we get along? Uh, tolerance? Uh, well, I Love? Just, we are so not giving enough power to hypocrisy, as we say this, because uh, trade and uh, the American West in the 19th century is a particular place of that, where people are wanting an economic profit and uh, pretending to be very fond of the people with Great. whom they're dealing, is, or pretending, and then maybe actually getting fond of Mutual that. Mutual need. So I feel that one of the worst things to do in life, because I've tried it both ways, is to uh, speak a public audience is and uh, refer to their inconsistency or hypocrisy, and they are lost, they are gone to you. But if you say, you are the most wondrous, paradoxical people, I'm just <laughs> seeing so many ways in which contradictory things are interwoven, so that, then you are, they're kind of purring at that point, it's really nice. So, so that's, part of, that's part of the strategy, but the point is really, the point is to say that commerce actually can be a spectacular way of making people behave better. Some of the best things that happen in corporate environmental action come from the public relations offices that say we must, we must raise that. So I'm going to say something that is so obvious that I am here representing America at its best. I have a cowboy boot here and uh, Indian people who have every reason to abhor the insignia of cowboys because they're fabled cowboys fighting Indians and so on. Indian people are some of the most enthusiastic wearers of cowboy hats, and, and that's what happens. And you can say, oh, you should not be adopting the images of colonial uh, invasion, but cowboy hats are excellent, and boots are very excellent, and, and this is a Western shirt, and that, that is a commercial product that has brought people into shared conduct and behavior. So the alliance that comes from what do, this is the thing I don't really agree with with the Steinbeck passage is that they're out for each other and that that will mean opposition. You can be out for each other, you could, excuse me, they're out for themselves and that pits them against each other. You try to form, you try to dig an irrigation system by yourself. So you can be very eager to have an irrigation system in the American West in the late 19th century and, and have it work for you, but you had better find people to collaborate with. What I have now introduced is that as if I had anyth done anything but reinvent a very well-known wheel, the, uh, that politics makes strange bedfellows, that you can build alliances from people who really had no desire to be with each other, but they want, each of them individually wants something that they will never get without that collaboration. Shared cultural references and shared interests. And greed. Can, uh, we, can could, we could frame greed more uh, uh, positively as economic opportunity. That's what I yeah. meant. That's what I meant. What he said, what he said is what I meant. 
Anything to add? To that? I, yeah, I wanted to add opportunity. Um, yes, thank you. Yeah, and and I mean, Gary, Gary alluded to this uh, in in the, his answer to the opening question, but there there has to be some shared sense of opportunity that we're we're all sure. kind of playing not just the same cultural game, not just the same economic game, but we're playing by the same rules, and that those rules give us the same opportunities, and so. Uh, it, you know, I, I often say that um, that a lot of the institutions that we have in American society are, are assimilating institutions, not necessarily by design, some of them by design, but because they give people opportunities. So the opportunity to go to a public school is not just about learning a common history, it, it's also about giving yourself or, or getting the kind of human capital, the, the kind of um, preparation you would need to be a successful member of the workforce citizenship status, which is, you know, if we want to talk about the contemporary period, that probably the biggest inhibitor of assimilation today is the, just the, the condition of illegality. So, but, but I, I hear what you're all saying, but I, I, had, I, talked to, I had a long talk with Patty uh, yesterday. Um, and very congenial. Very, very congenial. Yes. Um, and what struck me is that we, we're talking in the, in the context of, 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 of Native American and white conflict. She said that intermarriage often preceded brutal war. Yeah. That yeah. actually, yeah, you know, yeah. and I, you know, the general belief, or many often believe, well, that, that, that intermarriage and mixing actually mitigates mm -hmm. war. And, but you said it actually just perhaps made the wars messier. The worst part there, I think, is that mm. the wars are often preceded by a period of getting to know each other. I, I referred to very congenial because if you're interviewed one on one by him, you work harder than you do in ordinary life. And I'm nicer. And he when does. I'm one he on can't one. just do set pieces because mm -hmm. he just pushes you on that. So that's really good. Uh, and you're doing that a little bit now because it is the case that at the Sand Creek Massacre in Colorado on November 29, 1864, many of the Indian people who were attacked by. Uh, white soldiers were people of mixed ancestry. Many of the Indian people had white ancestors through the fur trade. So did that cause the uh, brutality to be moderated? Because people said, well, now as I look at your cheekbone structure here, I can't help but notice that you might be one closer <laughs> in ethnicity and, and uh, mutilating you may not be my first, I'm sorry, this is getting bad. So, so I'm looking at this wonderful is person. Is there a, a button on this chair? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so, but it is true that there, can, there is often a long middle ground phase of right. meeting and negotiating and trading, and then that does not prevent really dreadful violence. Let, let okay. me approach this from a, a, the, the somewhat different angle. Yes, good idea. Uh, <laughs> less uh, murderous. Less yes, murderous. Yes. Uh, I do think there, if we're talking about a nation and its cohesion, there have to be uh, common points of understanding about what the culture and nation represents. But one of the very interesting things about American society, and to, to, to the extent to which we consider this nation a success, I think it's indispensable to the success, the understanding of what that common culture constitutes has the capacity to change. And often the agents of change are the newcomers uh, in American society or the people on whom the border moved, yeah, yeah. Uh, but who are able to assert their kind of culture and to say, if we're to be part of this American nation, this nation is going to have to change somewhat so as to accommodate us. And we have some very outstanding examples. Uh, Tomas uh, uh, alluded to one of them. This country was founded uh, by, if we talk about founding uh, in terms of European settlers on the Atlantic coast, by uh, Protestant fanatics 
uh, who were fleeing the antichrists of the world and were tolerant of nobody. And mm -hmm. they imagined that this was going to be a mm -hmm. Protestant nation. Uh, and for many years, it wanted to be a Protestant nation. And then the Jews and Catholics say, and the Christian Orthodox, what's my place in this Protestant nation? And across the 20th century, the country reinvented itself as a Judeo-Christian nation. I don't think it's impossible that it will one day reinvent itself as an Ab Abrahamic Christian nation, bringing in Muslims as, 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 as well as Jews. Today, is Neil Gorsuch a Protestant or not? If he is, he's the only Protestant that sits on the Supreme Court. And there may not be any. He's if Catholic. he's not, there's no Protestant that sits on the Supreme Court. Right. Uh, and the idea in the 19th century that there would be no Protestant on the Supreme Court huh. Huh. would be considered the height of heresy. One more right. example, yeah. and then I'll <laughs> shut up. Uh, the idea that black is beautiful, which is part of the Civil Rights Revolution in the 1960s. There was an idea of assimilation that prevailed that in order to be fully American, you had to push your culture. If you didn't get rid of it, you had to push it out of sight. And blacks say, well, they're never going to accept me. so." I'm going to cling to my blackness and render it beautiful. And all these other Europeans, and I would say Mexicans and indigenous peoples, are watching what blacks are doing in the 1960s and saying, we too can have a different relationship to America. When Philip Roth publishes Portnoy's complaint, the Jewish community leadership is apoplectic that all this dirty linen about the Jewish community mm -hmm. is being presented to the public. Before Francis Ford Coppola's godfather, comes out. I had to watch it 20 times because it was the price of admission to my wife's family. We had, a, <laughs> we, had a, we had to watch it every year. The first 45, it is a great film, <clears throat> the first 45 minutes is about a Sicilian Italian wedding. The Italian community is a wreck that this is going to turn America against Italians for all time. America falls in love with Italians and has been in love with Italians mm. ever since. Mm. What's happening at this moment is that the definition of what it means to belong to America is changing. Now there's a much greater recognition that you can have a much more public expression of your culture than you had had previously and still be fully American. This is another example of America reconstituting its sense of what it means to be part of this larger experiment. I want to go back, and I'm still having trouble with this notion that shared interest gets us, gets us to get along. Uh, shared reference points gets us to get along. When we have Steinbeck, we have refugees from the Dust Bowl. They didn't have shared reference points culturally. They weren't seen as part of the broader white American public. So we didn't get along with the, the Okies when they came, and they, 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 they had shared interests in same... What happened? That breaks, that's why I'm having trouble with the sh shared interest means getting along. So, well, it's back to the rules thing, I think, that you were saying, because, of course, people compete. When people are in a competing business, they share the value of wanting to have that business succeed and to make a profit from it, and they can see each other as rivals on that. And so if there is something that is a, a this is back to the institutions, if there's a structure that says there will be some kind of, of just reward to exertion, then that makes it tenable. Otherwise, it's a free-for-all. Otherwise, it's just can, a bite. Can I, yeah, I, mean, I, I actually think that, that maybe the, there's an assumption that getting along is, is what we should be striving for, or getting along is, what we should, mm -hmm. is, is, is somehow something we're not doing now and we did in some past period. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I'm, I'm not sure that's actually the case. I mean, even in the, in the context of assimilation, uh, it is not as if 
it comes about, it's not as if the, the end product is everyone getting along harmoniously and people kind of um, bleeding out any ethnic difference and not recognize it. I mean, I think Gary's you know, talking about a historical period, particularly in the 60s and 70s, where people were starting to, to kind of re-recognize it. You know, I think it's about kind of mostly getting along, or maybe better put, an absence of conflict. Great, yeah. that's and, what I'm looking for. The, yeah, I, I th and I think that I think that's actually a worthwhile aspiration, the mm -hmm. absence of conflict. So this gets back to my wanting mm -hmm. to kill my neighbor but not actually killing him. That's good enough. Yeah, well, well I big. think... That's big. That's significant. No, no, I, I, it's I, not good enough. I, I, would, I, don't <laughs> go think I, I was going to say, I don't think it's good enough, but so let's, let's go back to the... You said the absence of conflict. There's yeah, actually we, no conflict with me and my neighbor. I just harbor certain disdain. So let's think of conflict maybe as an internally held <laughs> frame of right. state of mind, too, okay. I guess. Having no beef with those around you. Yeah, yeah, or, or, at, most a, or at most a minimal no, beef. Uh, because, because, in fact, uh, disagreeing vigorously, clearly, debating in a civil way and reaching a, a conclusion from that that we're going to, to get, I shall get 45% of what I want, you'll get 55%, I'm going to have to settle for that. I mean, that is, it's not absence of conflict, it's productively managed conflict. And that, I like that. in the absence of that, you guys are refining it. Well, yeah, yeah. Scary. Yeah. So conflict can be good. Of course. Uh, it's productive. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's dynamic. And it's a que it, the question is not necessarily how well is it managed, but what happens to the conflict? It, does it have places to go that can lead to productive mm -hmm. solutions? So the Jews and the Catholics who in the 20s and 30s feel deeply excluded from American life in all kinds of ways. Uh, protest this. They conflict with That's the right. Protestants. They assert their rights. And they are able to fashion a different image of America mm -hmm. in the process. I would say something about African Americans in the 1960s and 70s. So th these are conflicts that are productive, that yield meaningful change, that a lot of Americans who are not part of those groups come to believe in and celebrate as their own. So by the 1990s, there, uh, people are talking about diversity as the essence of America and Americanism. Not e pluribus unum, not out of many one, but diversity. Now, wh whatever you think about diversity, the fact that presidential candidates as different as Bill Clinton and George W. Bush would celebrate diversity as the essence of America marks America as a very different place mm -hmm. than it had mm -hmm. been 50 or 60 or 70 mm -hmm. years earlier. So that's a story of conflict yielding productive results, and it's more, it's more, I'm not, it's more than just tolerating my neighbor, I'm not going to kill him. It's a sense of a shared enterprise. I think part of what's worrying us now at this moment is that we don't know where the current conflict yeah. is going to go and whether it's going right. to have right. the same kind of positive resolution that, as these past conflicts have had. And I think it's on our minds a lot. It's worrying a lot of us a lot of the time we genuinely don't know where this is going, and that some of the anxiety and insistence that you're pushing on us reflects this very fraught moment in which we're living. Patty uh, has a limerick for us that she wrote in about <laughs> two seconds, and right, she threatened me if I didn't let her right. read it. Right. And, uh, Inspired uh, by the topic for the yes. night. Uh, this is this was written in what 32 seconds or something. It was really incredible. It was Less actually, it was yeah. 20, 23 seconds. The, uh, but it must have been 
brought into being because, in fact, this is a good discussion, and I don't know that we're all peas in a pod in our agreement. We have a good moderator. The good moderator is missing in most of American society. Get to the limerick, so thank it's you, a tribute to you. It's a tribute to you, and I am going to write a limerick about you, but I haven't gotten there yet. So here it is. The art of getting along keeps some nations healthy and strong, but our nation fights and snarls and bites and zigzags between right and wrong. <laughs> So to answer the question of the evening, uh, my, my first take is, did Americans ever get along? It's, it's, it's that they, they didn't need to on some level. Huh. Huh. But why don't I have you all end it that way? You first, Tomas. Did Americans ever get along? No, they didn't ever completely get along, but we mostly got along, partly because we struggled we were willing to struggle with our uh, with conflict and to to fashion a new American society, but also kind of at an individual level, mostly by accident. We were striving to <clears throat> have a better life for ourselves, for our kids, and in that process, moved to new neighborhoods, went to new schools, fell in love with new people, and that's really the kind of evolution of the American mainstream. Gary, <clears throat> we have to guard against nostalgia of looking at the past and through rose-colored glasses and thinking we were once fine and, and now we're not. I think we're all in agreement here that this has been a country full of conflict uh, a lot of the time, a lot of it ugly, a lot of it productive and dynamic uh, and leading to good results. And I think we're, it's better to, to understand how much conflict has been a part of America and then to identify those moments when that kind of conflict led to good results and to distinguish those moments from those that led to very bad results. I would add one other thing to that, and that is it's hard to talk in general universalistic terms about America getting along. You see this in the Steinbeck essay. He's so comfortable talking about the European ethnics and them melding into one, and he doesn't really know what to do with the indigenous peoples right. or with African-Americans. Af 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 African African yeah. And that provides profound insight into this country's past, that mm -hmm. a lot of this past yeah. solutions yeah. have focused on um, Europeans um, and have had much more difficulty including into the story of America uh, African Americans, those brought here against their will, uh, those who were here for time immemorial on whom the border moved, uh, and uh, that story has, as Patty has been urging us to do, has to be incorporated into our larger story, and we have to understand that sometimes the cohesion of the nation has been built on the exclusion of those groups, and that is an issue which we're still very much struggling with today. Patty, have Americans ever gotten along? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Some young scholar might be writing a monograph at this moment that will uh, change my mind on that. I have struggled, though, I, in the last few years. I'm often asked, has it ever been this this tense, this fractured, this, and I say, yes, it has been much worse. It has been this tense, the 1850s and, the, and then the Civil War itself. And so uh, we're uh, tweeting in an unpleasant manner. We're tweeting in an unpleasant manner, and we have it, a Civil War. And out, out, break, so not that I'm a big fan of tweeting in an unpleasant manner, though I've never done that in my life, I'll say. I'm very pure on that matter. Uh, but I don't get as much comfort out of that as I would like. If I say, why, it's been quite bad in the past. That doesn't make me think, 
well, I might I'd be much happier now that, that I've got, I'd think, if, it would be like if you were driving on a bridge that was in mild disrepair compared to bridges that have fallen down. <laughs> Are you supposed to say to yourself, it's a pretty good bridge. It's, uh, it hasn't fallen into the river yet, so it's good. We're, I'm, I'm, on the, I'm on the bridge. So I don't know what exactly the consolation or comfort is that we're supposed to take. I have written a very excellent Surgeon General's warning, which uh, <laughs> no Surgeon General has adopted, I don't understand that, uh, about the warnings, a warning, a Surgeon General's warning against nostalgia, that, that, that you should not operate heavy equipment when you are under the influence of, of nostalgia. Uh, so I've, I've, I'm totally on that. Watch out right. for nostalgia. But having, if you correct for nostalgia, and you can say, oh, it was very bad in the past, what have you said about your stance in the presence and how you will conduct yourself, not as a historian or public intellectual, but as a citizen. Um, please give a round of applause to our all-star panel. Hi, I'm Monica Gannis. My question is, um, what do you do when people aren't just not getting along, but not getting along because they say, I am better than you. My culture's better than you. My music's better than you, and the rest of it. I just wonder if we could factor that in a little bit. I do a lot of public forums where I have some tricks of uh, asking people if they go into a personal vein with a speaker, I will often interrupt them. If they are saying the speaker is ignorant or the person on the other side of the room is ignorant and I am knowledgeable, I say, oh, I am so sorry, I'm going to interrupt you here because we know you feel very strongly about this and you have a point that we want to hear and we can't hear it because you're, you put yourself so much at the center of this and, and no wonder because you feel so strongly, but we can't get your point. So I'm coming back to you in 10 minutes <laughs> and if you would, I'm not in any way shutting you down, I just want you to, if you could just rephrase that so we can hear the substance of your point. So I think there's some interesting, tricky ways to ask people to be better than that. If they are in that utter stance of the reason I am speaking and, and shutting other people up is because I am the only one in the room who has that, help them from that. Offer them a, a, a life raft to say, I'm coming up from that. I'm not going to go there. That's, that is a very, that's the horrible therapeutic society of Boulder, Colorado, where we have aromatherapy and we do those kinds of things. So it's just kind of, we, we'll work our way past this. But rather, I don't know where you get taking it on directly saying, stop that, or, but to sort of invite something better out of them. My name is Michael Wiseman from Los Angeles. And I have a question I think that Gary hit on a little bit, but I'd like to hear a little bit more. You know, this country's founding fathers, as you mentioned, were not a random sample of individuals from the countries from which they came, right? I mean, they, for one reason or another, were under conflict. They were not appreciated politically, racially, economically. Then they came here. Why is it that, is, did that special experience of who, of the fact that they came with those conflicts create the American experience that we then formally have difficulty now understanding how they get along. You're right that um, the, the, there's a self-selection process that goes on with migration. 
uh, most obviously it's the young. Not, of course, it depends on whether there's a mass exodus and people are under terrible persecution and everybody tries to flee. But for large periods of American history, they were, they, they were younger, they were heavily male, they were in search of work. If you, uh, uh, if you uh, understand what it takes to uproot yourself from one country and go to another, they were probably more enterprising uh, and entrepreneurial uh, than the, the, the average person. Uh, many of them also came to the United States not intending to stay. They came as birds of passage. They, they were migrants within Europe, and the Atlantic was just one bigger pond to jump over. They were going to come for, for a few years. The rates of return are simply extraordinary before World War I. Six out of every ten Italians go back to Italy. Uh, really extraordinary numbers. Uh, and if we understand that these are enterprising young people, many of them not intending to stay, it, it requires us to look carefully at the cultures and attitudes that they brought with them. Uh, what's interesting is, of course, they are often here longer than they thought, and they still dream of going home. But when they finally do get home, mm -hmm. they are no longer recognized as yeah. countrymen by the people mm -hmm. they left behind, because America has changed them in ways that they had not recognized. My fav favorite illustration of this, of course, it's not the best, but this is an older crowd. So I can you, you're, many of you have watched The Sopranos. Uh, and Tony's got to go back to southern Italy and commune with his people. And, you know, he and his buddies are there for three hours, and they say, these people are not Italian. <laughs> <laughs> right. We're okay. leaving. So, I, and I, so, I have to... Th can so, I, this, so, so this complicates the, the, the story, and it means we have to take seriously what they brought with them and also understand the way they begin to change in ways that, at the beginning, they don't even realize. I have to throw in uh, Arnold... Schwarzenegger here because I met an Austrian man and he says that when Schwarzenegger is in Austria he sounds so American that the Austrians are just oh you funny sounding thing and then we have Schwarzenegger here in his accent so what a wonderful poor Arnold this is just a, a moment of sympathy for Arnold that he is hi I'm Kevin Hurl uh, Gary we were talking about how Steinbeck doesn't seem to address the African-American and the the Native Americans in his uh, e pluribus unum piece uh, in the in my memory of the manu of the typescript, uh, which is in the J.P. Morgan Library, he actually comes up with something pretty much like David Rodiger, uh, saying that that part of the process of, of assimilation was we will be happy to be treated like dirt for one generation, as long as we're treated slightly better than the African Americans and our children are then assimilated. Is that David uh, Rodinger, the author of How the Irish Became White. Yes. Well, th this is a, a wonderful illustration of the value of, this is a wonderful il illustration of the value of scholarship, and here you've done, done more than I have. He, there is a, a version of this that includes that statement that did not make it into print. Yes. And so the question is, did he take it out? Did a publisher take mm. it out? Mm. Uh, and uh, mm. and it, it underscores the value of, um, uh, of, of scholarship and understanding the different stages in which one's thinking goes through. What's clear from the piece is that he senses, I think, that he's on the cusp of something big. He's, this is published in 1966. He's writing it, as Tomas said, in 64 and 65. Uh, so he, I think he senses that something big is happening, but he's not quite certain what it is. And so he doesn't quite know where to put the African-American story. So the published version leaves it out. But this, 
uh, clues us in, and I hope you'll write something about this, clues us into a, a, a form of thinking that he was on the verge of, but perhaps didn't have, quite have the confidence to go into print with. At that I think your, your question brings up a, a larger insight, which is that part of learning to be American, and in, in many ways, learning to not be Italian anymore, learning to, to not be Irish anymore, part of learning to be American is learning the American racial system and figuring out, sometimes in, in an in a organized way, where you slot in, uh, and sometimes just in, in everyday life. I mean, there are multiple accounts of how different groups became white. Uh, there was even an account, uh, dissertation several years ago, uh, about how in Chicago, Mexican immigrants who came during the early part of the 20th century essentially followed the same pattern that Rodiger talks about, which they figured out very quickly they didn't want to live around black people. Hi, my name is Dominic Conrocode, and earlier you all mentioned Americans bonding over hazing one group of people. Well, at some point, aren't we going to run out of a substantial group of minorities to haze? And yeah. where do we go from there? I, I mean, in the middle of the 20th century, I, I, that's a great question, actually. Um, I, you know, I was thinking, it, we had, we had uh, few people have brought up the idea of hazing, and I, I don't know, it, it conjures hmm. kind of a, a frat party or something like that, and I would have to say that right now, America's like, the worst fraternity ever <laughs> um, uh, in, in terms of hazing. But, you know, I, the, the, the middle of the 20th century, there was very little immigration. And so if, and we, we turned to Russia, we turned, well, the Soviet Union, we turned, we had other kind of, of enemies to, to pick on to, to fashion a, a kind of common we out of a, out of a clearly identified other. Uh, and, and I think when we have immigrants here, they're, there's more internal conflict and, and more opportunities for people to kind of find the other next door. Um, so I don't know, if we, run out of, if we run out of immigrants who come to the United States, then, then uh, I don't know, maybe we have to turn back to Russia. I have, can I add, <laughs> can I add eight, eight words? No, it's a great question, but no, we won't run out, and the climate crisis is gonna intensify mm. the search for yeah. scapegoats, and who's gonna be allowed over the border, and who's not. I guess I'll just say the amnesia quality of the American people, I don't totally celebrate that, but I think it's possible for people to forget earlier episodes of tormenting a group and reinvent it or rediscover it or, or not even know that they're rediscovering, but thinking, well, here's a group and not consulting history. And what a funny thing, way to consult history that would be, to look back and say, oh, for heaven's sake, they all already persecuted the Koreans. Oh, for heaven's sake. So that's, that's been... <laughs> That's out of our reach now. So I think it is possible that there's a, a sufficient amnesia that there may not be that record of prior, so that you could start fresh. You could go back and get those people, those people who went to Rhode Island. Let's get those people. And, uh, careful Rhode careful Island, so. what you say about okay. <laughs> Got a lot for, of friends there. I hope we all understand how amazingly fortunate we are to have these brilliant scholars on this stage. And <clears throat> I want to thank them again. Thank you.